Ladies and gentlemen, before we jump into the new episode, I want to share a small announcement from my side. Everybody loves to be an OG, and there are few things that are more OG than Monaco within IOTA. I'm happy to finally share with you that the Monaco Captain NFT collection is ready. It will go on sale on Sooniverse Tuesday 5th of April at 1900 Central European Time, which is 1300 Eastern Time. It's a collection of 2,222 unique pieces representing what Monaco is all about. Yachts, class and style. Are you ready to get your captain? Some of you might enjoy a cigar. Some might choose to gaze upon the Monaco Grand Prix through your 3D glasses. And a few of you will be shining like never before in your gold uniform. A Monaco Captain NFT shows that you are supporting the project it shows that you are among the few who sees the value of where we stand. It represents that you are among the early ones. It shows your will to build the foundation of the community. But most importantly, it shows faith in all of us. You are Monaco. I am Monaco. We are Monaco. Get behind. Get left behind. Now back to the episode. Three, two, one. Welcome back to a new episode. Today we are lucky enough to have a highly requested guest on board. Today's topic will be standards. And what better guest to have than Mike Bennett himself. Welcome, mate. Thank you, Thomas. How are you? I'm all good, and you? Yeah, yeah, I'm good, thanks. Fantastic. Uh, it's been highly requested this by the community to have you on. Oh, that's good to know. Thank you. Mm, I think it's a very exciting topic, this, all these standards, but I don't think it's a topic that too many knows too much about. So, But before we get on to the questions, could you explain a little bit about yourself and how you came into IOTA? Uh, sure, yes. So um, I'm, I'm Mike Bennett. I've been working in financial industry standards for about the last 20 odd years now and um been working on you know industry messaging standards and various other ways of standardizing the meanings of uh, financial instrument concepts um i initiated a project called the financial industry business ontology or fibo which defines the common meanings for securities and bonds and all the other financial instruments derivatives and so on and as part of standardizing that, um, we were doing it through an industry association called the Enterprise Data Management Council. And um, a lot of the banks were saying to us, well, you know, how do we know if we use this, how do we know anybody else is going to use it unless it's some kind of standard? So we went to the object management group, which is a standards body that's very active in the um, uh, the IT um, and systems development space and standardize it in that. So through the, the time I spent at the object management group, uh, we started becoming aware of uh, distributed ledger and blockchains and so on. And um, as a result of that, uh, uh, I was approached by the IOTA Foundation um, who were interested in standardizing uh, the work that they were doing. And so uh, I'm, I'm currently the um, standards liaison person for the IOTA Foundation, um, interacting with a range of standards bodies, but uh, mainly based around the work that we've been doing at the Object Management Group. So 
I'm sort of uh, a crypto newbie, if you like. I, I'm not not a developer. I don't always do all the details of crypto, but I kind of help pilot things through the standards process, um, which I'm familiar with through my previous work. Yeah, fantastic. Like, what is a standard, and like, how does a standard look? Oh, that's a good question. So, uh, it, you know, a lot of things can can be a standard. You think back to the simplest things, like which way do you turn a screw? You know, if you're going to make screws, you want to make them all turn the same way. That's kind of a standard at the simplest. And you know, as time went on, people have sort of had that same conversation of, oh, you know, if I do a thing this way, how do I know everybody else is doing it the same way? And so, what can become a standard? So you get a kind of you have a lot of things that are just de facto standards, like you know everybody agrees to do everything the same way. But then to formalize that, you say, well, okay, um, let's have something that's formally uh, agreed on that everybody's going to follow. And so you know we have the emergence of various national standards bodies, um, you know the British Standards Institute and uh, TUV in in Germany and so on. And you have international standards bodies that uh, bring all that together. So you have this kind of the idea of a formal standard, like a formal international standard, such as the ones done by ISO, where you have this very formal published document and it's versioned and controlled and everything. And it's basically a a written specification. In many ways, it's very like a requirement specification. It, it sets out in clear, neutral language. You know, this is how you do a thing. Now that thing might be um, a, a simple message standard, like in finance we have um, uh, messages for um, trading and transactions and so on. Like the fixed standard, we have the SWIFT um, payment standards. So ISO twenty o twenty two is the standard for that, or one of them. Um, and you can also have standards that standardise business process. Yeah, you know, how do you do a thing? You have standards for. Um, uh, Uh, development tools, so case tools like uh, unif uh, unified modeling language UML, for example, so that everybody building a tool that is a UML tool is building to the same standard, and you have a level of interoperability between those. So it can be anything from the very simple to the the fairly complex, you know, kind of standardization of process and choreography and um, all those kind of things. Um, anything that lots of people want to do it the same way and be confident that if they do it as written in this standards, they can interact with others, then, you know, that's a standard. You have standard identifiers like currency codes and things. Um, and you have, uh, yeah, standards for, for um, all sorts of things, really. Um, yeah. Mm. Like, who can set these standards? Can, like, can everyone just create standard? Um, well, yeah, in a way, you know, you can have anybody can do a thing and write it down clearly enough and say, right, you know, this is how, how we do this thing. Uh, and that's what we call a de facto standard. You know, if you're going to do this thing, um, do it the way we just said. But then um, if, you know, I could do that and nobody knows who I am, so why would they do it? So what you tend to have is it has to be somebody uh, broad enough that you know everybody can refer to them so typically an industry association or a national standards body or an international standards body um, because that way 
you know, you're sort of standardizing the standards, if you like. You know, everybody knows that everybody else knows that we're going to use this W3C standard or this um, OMG standard or, or, or whatever. Um, so, yeah, it's a case of who everybody's prepared to be confident in. You know, in the finance industry, we have uh, industry associations like the International Swaps and Derivatives Association, who created a messaging standard for derivatives. They're not a standards body, but they're the industry body. And so everybody uses that same message standard. You know, standards bodies that exist just for an industry standard, like you have in, in finance, we have the fixed protocol for trade messages. In healthcare, you have things like the FIRE standard for uh, basic healthcare uh, concepts and things. Um, you also have a whole bunch of others in healthcare, which is interesting. Um, so, so yeah, it's sort of like the main landscape, if you like, is uh, uh, national and international standards like ISO and so on, um, industry standards for particular industry verticals. Um, and, you know, in, in IT in particular, you have, you know, things like the W3C, the Object Management Group, uh, IEEE and so on, who are all standards bodies for a broader range of standards, um, but often with that IT focus to them. Um, yeah. Mm. What are some examples of standards bodies? Bodies. Mm. Yeah. So, um, so yeah, it's sort of uh, say so you've got uh, historically you've got the the national standards bodies, um, British Standards Institute, um, the American Standards. American National Standards Institute, ANSI, um, all of these, but most of the work they do now is tends to be wrapped up in, in uh, ISO, the International Standards Organization, which kind of brings all those uh, together. Um, and then, yeah, you have, as I say, um, Logic Management Group, um, W3C is very well known for everything to do with uh, uh, web-based interaction, including uh, semantic web and so on. Um, yeah, uh, who else would be a good examples? Um, yeah, I think yeah, I think certainly in our space, the main ones would be IEEE, Object Management Group, um, uh, and so. On. And then what's interesting is you have I mentioned you have standards association, uh, industry associations like we have with derivatives you know, de facto standards, so you have things like, you know, the Ethereum uh, ERC standards, for example, is that a standards body? No, but it's a body that is setting standards as well. And you can refer to those standards whether or not you're doing something on Ethereum itself. So you could say they're a sort of a standards body, even if they didn't start off as one. Um, mm. So yeah, it's quite a quite a broad landscape, but but a lot of the really heavy lifting is is people like the Object Manager Group, the IEEE, W3C, um, Oasis is another one. Um, I'm sure I'm missing a few as well. Um, EBSI, I think. Um, so yeah, there's a few of them out there, and some of them tend to focus on some specific um, area or aspect of things like communication protocols, for example, or web protocols and so on. Mm. Like, what, what's the benefits of a formal international standard, such as those governed by ISO on V3C and OMG? That's a good question. Um, so, you know, going by the experience we had with the FIBO standard, what we find is that, you know, that was an original industry association. 
they could have simply said, right, we're this industry association and this is our standard, just like other associations have done. But then, you know, a lot of the banks that might want to use the standard for this, this FIBO standard were saying, well, you know, how do we know that everybody else is going to use the same thing? So could you take it to somebody like the Object Management Group or Oasis or W3C or somebody? So there's that level of confidence. You know, it's, it's like, you know, I could create a standard for something. And if you all really liked me, you would do it the way that I said and we would have a standard, but then I get run over by a bus, and now who runs the standard? So there's there's that level of confidence of knowing that a standard is being run through a formal standards process by a body that is set up explicitly to run standards. So when you take something to the object management group, for example, and this would also be true with IEEE and uh, obviously ISO as well, everybody knows not only that that's the standard, but that there's a process by which that standard is maintained. And that gives you confidence in several ways. So it means that any versioning and change control goes through the same formal process that that organization uses. And if you have confidence in that process for one standard, you know that you can apply it to any other standards that's gone through that standards body. Um, you know, conversely, you've got some things like IETF, um, Internet um, Task Force uh, RFCs, which are, in theory, never quite a standard. They're always a suggestion, but everybody always follows the suggestion. Um, but, yeah, you've got this level of formal process and governance um, in ISO in particular, because with ISO, before something has completed the process, you know that all the every country has had a chance to be involved because countries are members of ISO along with uh, what they call liaison organisations. So certain industry standards bodies can choose to be a liaison for a particular um, technical uh, committee on ISO, like TC68 for finance. You have uh, um, OMG and a couple of other associations are, are liaisons there. So when you see a standard, you know that all the countries and those liaisons have had an opportunity to look at it and they've either joined the committee or they've chosen not to, but those that have have then voted on the thing. And so you know that this isn't just, you know, a stitch up by one country or another to do a particular thing their way. You know, you have that confidence that it's being fully vetted. Um, so I think if I was to summarise the key points there, it's having confidence in the process by which the standard arose in the first place. So you know that it's been, it's, it's properly uh, not anti-competitive, that there's no one industry player trying to stitch up the others. It's gone through that fairness. You know it's got formal change control and change management and versioning. You always know where to go to find the latest version. And you know that any differences in the previous version are clearly defined because that's part of the process. Um, and thirdly, you know that it's something that people are using. Um, for example, the object management group, you can't just run a standard through the whole process if you don't have at least some uh, initial adopter that's already starting to use that standard while it was in draft and that is committed to using it when it's published. And so you know that this is something real. So that's what the I think the, the big international standards give you is that there's three um, uh, factors that, that lead to... Um, greater confidence in the thing versus just, uh, you know, knowing that you're using it because everybody else agreed to use it. 
Mm. Uh, you you might have covered quite a lot of it, but like, are there other particular features of formal international standards as compared to more de facto standards? Like, for instance, what kind of documentation is needed and how do they look like? Right. Yes. Yes. I uh, I kind of covered a little bit of that, but um, yeah, if you think about those three pillars that I mentioned, that um, you know, it's been through a, a a formal process that means it's it's well approved and there's no you know, competitive stitch-up happening and so on. You know it's good, good change management, and you know that it's got some real adoption. But for all that to work, it means that a standard isn't, for example, some code. You don't just say, oh, you know, here's my um, here's a listing of something in Java or C. There's the standard. Go do it. You can't do that. You've got to have something that's a like a formal written specification written in the same way you'd write, you know, a requirement spec or obviously often more and more technical detail, but it's that, you know, thou shalt this and you shall that and so on. So it's a formally written document. It has uh, a lot of mandatory sections. So the scope is well defined. There's always references and um, all the uh, things you'd expect to find in a, a strong formal document. And as part of that, it's very clearly formally controlled. So by having a, a written spec, and in many standards like the object management group, they're often accompanied by machine-readable files. So, for example, if you have a, a standard that uses, that defines something in the UML language, then you would accompany it with some serialized UML in the XMI format, and that would be published too. So... Um, when you then go to the next version, because like all living documents, these there are going to be changes in the future, and so you're going to have some level of versioning. All that versioning is fully redlined, so that's why you can't just take you know some some sketch or some little piece of code or something that you're still tinkering with and call it a standard, or, or not, or at least can't, can't bringing it through a, a, a an international standards body like that. It has to be formalized enough that each subsequent change is fully redlined. You know, when you, you look at GitHub, you get all the full redline of what's changed since the previous version so that people using the standard, you know, if you take a standard like UML that people are building tools that implement it, they can then choose when to implement, you know, version 2.5 rather than 2.4 of UML, and they know exactly what the changes are going to be and they know that everybody else is going through those exact same changes. And so um, that's something maybe a little bit alien to some of the more new technology areas like distributed ledger. You don't just throw the code together and then do some nice explain it like on five stuff. You have to actually write everything down in a document that formally defines everything. Now, you don't redefine stuff that is already there. If you... Uh, if, if you can say something in terms of an existing standard, like say you want to talk about some kind of messaging interaction and the standards for that, like the DDS uh, standard, um, I can't remember what it stands for, but uh, um, that, then you reference those. And so as any formal document, you have references for other things that you're also referring to. You know, if you're using um, the Ketchak standard for uh, for hashing, for example, you don't need to rewrite everything that standard says. 
what you do need to do is refer to that standard and what version of it you're referring to. And if that gets updated, then you, you might update that reference in the next version of the standard. So it's about that, that full formal uh, specification of stuff so that everybody reading it with the right knowledge, you know, you always expect some prior knowledge, but a little bit when you file a patent and you say, you know, the patent description has to be implementable by anybody with the, the the right kind of industry knowledge for what it is. That's basically what you do with the standards. Like if you're somebody that understands this space, then these are all the things which if you read them all, then you can implement the standard without having to phone anybody up or, you know, look up some code and reverse engineer what you think it did or anything like that. Mm. Like how broad can a standard be though? Because like, for example, can you say this is the standard for a blockchain or this is a standard for a graph-based distributed ledger? Well, that's a good question. Um, yeah, it's it's an interesting balancing act because, um, you know, if you were to say, okay, let's standardize blockchain. Here's how all blockchains are going to be. Well, you'd end up just defining one blockchain. <laughs> you'd say, okay, the standard is Bitcoin or the standard is Ethereum or something. Um which would be very anti-competitive. Um, even with graph-based, you know, if you say, okay, you know, IOTA, for example, has this uh, very, very innovative uh, directed acyclical graph-based uh, distributed ledger, and um, there was this sort of choice, well, do we say, okay, this is the standard way of doing a graph-based distributed ledger? Then other people would say, well, hang on, I'm doing it this other way. I've got, you know, Hashgraph or whatever it is that has its own way of doing these things. What's wrong with that? So if you make it too broad, then it's like, well, so what? You say this is the standard, but I'm doing this this other way. Um, and uh, particularly with, you know, big international standards bodies like the Object Management Group, you haven't got every, every distributed ledger being a member of that nice if they were the same way that every uml tool vendor is a member of the omg so it works there um what makes more sense is to say okay if you're doing a, a hash based um distributed ledger this is the iota way of doing it and here is the published standard for the iota distributed ledger such that if you read this specification then without phoning anybody up or reverse engineering any code or having any, any inside knowledge, you should be able to write code for a node that will interact on that distributed ledger. So that's a more realistic level. It was a, it was, it's, a it's a difficult choice sometimes, you know, go too broad or too narrow, but it, it makes more sense to be able to say, right, you know, here is a distributed ledger where the protocol is defined as a standard such that it's an open ecosystem where anybody can read that standard and implement that protocol and it's not limited to just the two or three people that might have already written some code and gone through the difficult process of making it work on those nodes without being able to refer to a standard you know having to you know get into discord or slack or somewhere and keep asking questions till you get it working um so, so that's that's the balancing act. We've got a similar question with things like, um, you know, linked encrypted messages. Do you have one standard for this is how they're done, or do you say here's how we're doing it here? Um, so I don't know if that makes sense, but it's it's kind of a 
if you make it too broad, then it ceases to be useful as a standard. If you make it too narrow, it's really just one specification. But if you say, okay, here is you know a uh, big open ecosystem in which we can standardize what you need to do to run a node on that ecosystem, then that seemed to be the the right level at which to uh, to pitch the standard in the end, I think. Mm. And uh, what aspects of crypto can potentially benefit from the use of standards? Well, um, probably more than we realize. Um, although, as, as we're seeing, you know, Ethereum has uh, quite a wide range of uh, these ERCs, which are effectively kind of RFCs in the Ethereum space. Now, some of those are very specific to uh, that ecosystem. Some of the things we could file as Ethereum standards for things that would work in IOTA wouldn't work in the Ethereum ecosystem, so they get voted down. So in a way, they're sort of you know, a little too narrow there from what they could be doing because they've got a lot of things there around NFTs and so on that are uh, very nicely being standardized. Um, but you could also, you know, what about smart contracts? What is there about those that may or may not be able to be standardized? I mean, the smart contract languages like Go and so on are effectively a standard by virtue of being a, a language. You're going to use that language to write smart contracts in that environment. Um, but what about the business semantics, the business meanings of the terms in smart contracts? You know, we have a lot of bottom-up development where people end up doing the same thing in subtly different ways. I think where you start to see the need for a standard is if you've got two or three people doing the same thing in only slightly different ways, where actually if they did exactly the same, things would be a lot more interoperable, then there's a good case for having a standard. And interoperability is, you know, we've got a lot of industry members of the object management group from aerospace and finance and retail and so on. And they get quite worried about interoperability across different blockchain or distributed ledger environments and across different smart contracts and so on. So I think, I think that sort of, business definitions business semantics could be standardized better it's something the finance industry has struggled with you know the swift um network for example um among others uh, runs this iso 2022 standard which defines common meaning at a kind of logical data model level um because it came along before we really had better ways of doing meaning um and that's often one that's hard for people to to understand and follow um other things that can be standardized, if you think about the layered model, so at the IEEE, they're trying to have not so much a standard, but more of a, a standard description or an architecture for what is layer naught or layer one or layer two, just so that we all mean the same thing by layer one or, or layer two. Um, what are some of the kinds of things you can run on layer two, like, for example, um, linked encrypted transactions like the IOTA streams uh, or, or cubic streams and so on, where there are different ways of linking messages without necessarily using smart contracts, but being able to connect one message to another. That's a, that's a big area of potential for standardization because there's a lot of business benefit to having a, a non-repudiable record that's posted to a distributed ledger, a lot of that business benefit follows, regardless of anything to do with cryptocurrency, just having a, 
a uh, irrefutable record that this thing arrived at these docks or this uh, mortgage belongs to this piece of real estate or you know this person's will says you know anything that you have non-repeatable records for there's a business case for that but without being be able to connect those things together you can't really do much with it so that's a big area for standardization i think is this different ways of uh, linking uh, transactions or messages that are posted to blockchains at different times um what else interoperability itself has been a big thing as i say we did a an rfi request for information on interoperability at the omg um a couple of years ago and again it came back to well there's common semantics so it's how do you get something in one blockchain to talk to something in another um all these different layers at which those interoperability problems exist. Um, and then, of course, you've got things like identity, so self-sovereign identity, uh, different ways of doing that, different um, configurations. Again, W3C has the DID standard for that. But the DID standard says, oh, here's how to structure a payload. Well, you can do that payload a hundred different ways. So there's a lot of potential for standardizing. You know, right now, I suspect there's a lot of different uh, did payloads that could be the same but are not because there's some level of standardization that could be done there. Um, what else? So, yeah, smart contracts, NFTs, distributed ledger, um, um, uh, what do you call it? Um, uh, streams. Um, <clears throat> and uh, I think what else? But, uh, uh, yeah, I, I, that's a few to be going on with at least. Yeah, definitely. Like, uh, do you see other crypto projects being this intensive on uh, on standardizing, or is IOTA kind of a leading protocol when it comes to standardizing? Right, um, I'm not seeing others. I, I get some interest sometimes. I think the thing is that you know this word standard gets thrown around a lot without people necessarily meaning by it the same thing I meant by it when I described earlier what one is. You know, we often see that word just being used. So um, I think there's there's an appetite for standards and some of the other crypto um, ecosystems, but I've, I've not seen any joining, certainly joining the object management group. I'm sure there's quite a few that are interacting with W3C on on the DIDs and so on, as, as IOTA are doing. Um, it would be nice to see more cryptos come together in the same standards body so that we get standards that really work for a broader range of people. Um, as I say, right now, we've got the, the Ethereum ERC standards as a kind of de facto standards body, but you know, not necessarily applicable to other architectures sometimes. Um, so I'm not saying as much as I would have expected of standardization. And I think, uh, I think because so much of DLT is, is new and it, it relies on a very innovative programming, which itself means that you tend to have a very kind of uh, agile type of uh, 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 approach to things, which is perfect for developing new stuff. But when you bring in the, when you need the formalism of standards, when you need that formal redlined change control that I mentioned and everything always being in a very specific state and, and clearly published in in formal language and so on, that sets you a bit alien. So you know, for, for the, the what you need to 
innovate and surface all the new ideas and find what's possible requires a very different mindset to what it takes to have a repeatable, reusable industry standard. And mm. so that kind of, uh, that way of thinking, I think you need more leadership from the um, distributed ledger foundations or communities or whoever is responsible for the architecture of a given uh, DLT uh, environment to say, right, you know, over here on the left, we have all this innovative stuff. And by definition, it's too dynamic to be a standard. And then over here on the right, we have the production level stuff. And here we bring in the uh, formal levels of controls and so on that you need to have before you can even go to a standards body and say, here, we have this standard that we'd like to uh, uh, put forward for adoption as a formal international standard. So I'm not seeing much of that yet. Um, I've had a, little, a few little sort of sniffs of interest from um, a couple of other um, of the more innovative distributed ledgers out there. Um, so I think people are starting to see the, the potential for getting involved with standardization, um, but um, not at the moment. Um, no. No. There's probably an advantage for IOTA as well for being early uh, into this. I would think so, yes, because yeah. it's that, you know, you're going, okay, so I've got a business case where, you know, I want to have, you know, this kind of, uh, um, you know, graph-based, you know, um, fee-less uh, uh, distributed ledger. Should I use one of these two or three I can see over here or should I use the one that is also published as an international standard? Well, I guess I go with the standard one because, you know, it's been through some process and, you know, if they get run over by a bus, the standard itself is still going to be there, you know. Mm. So but what other type of uh, standard initiatives do you, are you aware of at the moment? Uh, so it's interesting. We've got um, at the IEEE, there's uh, a number of working groups uh, looking at the underlying architectures, uh, they're looking at um, uh, blockchain for energy and blockchain in Internet of Things. So they've got a lot of committees working at those very specific um, or task forces, they're called, working at those very specific levels, uh, mainly really documenting what there is at the moment. Um, then you've got, and I hope I'm not being unfair to them, I'm sure there's more to it, but, um, you know, really getting clear written descriptions of, of, of what's out there. Um, then you've got ISO, which has a new, uh, relatively new technical committee, maybe three, four years ago now, for um, everything to do with distributed ledger. And they've got subcommittees for, you know, smart contracts and, you know, other aspects of distributed ledger. Um, not sure what standards they've got coming through, if any, um, at the moment. I think, again, because it's a relatively new area, I think a lot of these standards bodies are figuring out the architectures and how the layers fit together and so on. Mm. Um, at the object management group, we have um, um, a standard um, or an RFP that's gone out that uh, the OTA Foundation is responding to for uh, linked encrypted transaction streams. So this is this kind of um, level two kind of thing for having series of messages where each message 
you know, has some kind of pointer so you can identify. It's more than a pointer; it's kind of a state a state machine thing. But um, it, it identifies that it belongs to a particular stream of messages, and so there's that connecting together uh, different um, transactions on the distributed ledger. So that's the the let's RFP. Um, there's um, RFI. They're working on on smart contracts. Um, that's been going on for a while now, and at first it was very broad. And the trouble with an RFI, you're kind of trying to find out from the industry what you don't know. But in a new area, it's kind of like, well, we don't know everything. How do we ask the right questions? So we reframe that RFI to be more about a kind of pattern language for generating smart contracts code and doing an RFI to establish whether there's potential for an RFP, a request for proposals for for that, so we can expect to see a, a smart contracts um, code generation pattern language type of uh, standard coming through. Um, so self-sovereign identity is an interesting one because um, there was a group that had some funding from the EU for a thing they called disposable self-sovereign identity, and they came to the object management group with that. Um, and then they sort of, their organization kind of moved on to be other things and and we were left with this idea. So we did an RFI. We said, well, you know, is anybody asking for disposable self-sovereign identity? Is it different to just how you'd use the existing self-sovereign identity? What would be different and so on? And so uh, we're working on a um, RFP for that at the moment that would have um, uh, basically uh, formalizing the contextual nature because disposable is really contextual if you think about it. It's, it's disposable because you want an identity that you can dispose of after you've um, finished the context in which you needed it. And so um, we're standardizing what is context, um, how do you standardize the payload for that, because obviously the existing payloads are there, the DID standard. Um, so that's coming through. Um, what else is coming through? Uh, I think that's it at the moment. The um, the IOTA protocol is um, going to come through the object management group when it gets to that kind of when it gets to a suitably formal uh, production stage. And so um, that's been on our roadmap for a while, but we don't have any timings for that at the moment. Um, have I missed any smart contracts, special identity? Um, those are the ones I'm aware of at the moment. I'm sure there's other stuff that I've uh, I missed somewhere out there, but uh, that's that's what I'm aware of right now. Like, what existing standards uh, could be applicable in the crypto space? Yeah. Um, <coughs> excuse me. Yeah, there's um, there's a lot of standards we could be making use of, and some of them we already are. But I mentioned that you know, when you write a standard, you don't reinvent anything that's already been standardized. And um, there's a lot of things that we could be referring to and making reference to or just making use of. Um, so, for example, uh, in, in finance, we have various standards of security identifiers like ICIN and QSIP and so on. And there's a relatively new one that we... Um, work with on the object management group called the Financial Industry Global Identifier, or FIGI. Uh, it was brought to us by Bloomberg. They made their uh, identification system freely available, but 
as as I mentioned before, that people don't always want to go to some entity for something as a standard. They want to know it's come to a standards body. So Bloomberg brought it to the object management group. What Figgy does is it identifies things at a slightly deeper level of detail than your typical um, international standards like ISIN and um, that's an international standardization itself of QCIP and CDOL and so on, the various national identifiers. So Figgy goes down to another level of detail, down to exchange and currency level, and that's proven to be very useful for crypto. So the Figgy ecosystem has been extended now, so we have um, identifiers being issued for crypto assets. And for example, in crypto, the exchange pairs will often be subtly different on different exchanges. And so that Figgy architecture for being able to identify down at the exchange level meant that you can get a Figgy for the different exchange pairs on each of the different exchanges that um, that Figgy's are registered for. So that's a really uh, important one to keep an eye on. And it covers every crypto asset. So, you know, any and, you know, some more traditional financial assets that make reference to crypto might already be in Figgy anyway through Bloomberg, but we have a um, an issuer of Figgies for specifically crypto assets uh, over in France that does all that. It's called Keiko. Um, so they have that standard. Um, the standards for things like uh, legal entity identifiers, the LEI standard, for example, um, can you apply that to a DAO? Probably not, because by definition, a DAO is not a legal entity. Um, but then LEIs are applicable to more than just what a lawyer would refer to as a legal person or legal entity. They can apply to anything that can be a counterparty in a financial contract or transaction. But again, is a smart contract, a financial contract or transaction? Um, don't know. So there's a interesting whole question there about whether or how LEIs might ever be brought into play in the world of, of, of DAOs and things. Um, then you've got simple stuff like currency codes and, you know, if you have a character for your currency, do you register it with Unicode? Do you take um, a cryptocurrency and register it in the ISO currency code standard? Um, at least one or two cryptos have done that. I know that um, uh, Nano, for example, went through the formal process of registering an ISO currency code um, so those are standards we can make use of and some people are making use of in uh, the existing uh, standard space. Um, I'm sure there must be others that we could be um, um, leveraging in one way or another. Mm. And how does standards for like software quality and governance work? Ah, that's a good question. So, um, so yeah, one of the things that... Uh, comes up a lot in industry conversations about distributed ledgers, um, particularly the object management group, where we have a lot of uh, industry participants, like, as I say, people from um, um, aerospace and, you know, manufacturing and so on, healthcare. Um, one of the things people look at is to say, well, okay, I want to use this particular distributed ledger. I like the architecture they're using. I like the way they're doing things. But, you know, how do, I know that, how do I know they're not just a couple of guys in a basement? How do I have confidence in them? And so there are, in fact, a lot of uh, well-established uh, quality standards. You know, the, the obvious one is ISO 9000, for example, that can be applied to literally anything. And ISO 9000 is a standard that says you 
say what you're going to do, then you do what you said you're going to do, and then you prove that you did what you said you were going to do. And it's literally that simple, but there's uh, there's IT implementations of that. Obviously, manufacturing uses that a lot. Um, and, and other basic maturity things, you know, your basic capability maturity model out of Carnegie Mellon, for example, CMM, um, things like that, that, you know, people are looking for ways of knowing how mature and well-governed the entity itself is that governs a particular distributed ledger because looking in from the outside, nobody can tell, you know, which of these um, blockchain and DLT projects is is run in a, a, a formal, mature way where they always know that there's going to be code there. They know that if they say they've done an audit, they have done an audit. What kind of audit was it? Um, have they also done software quality audits, not just security audits? How do we know they've done what they say they did? By what standards did they do a particular kind of audit or a particular kind of uh, testing activity? What kind of testing do they even have? Uh, all of that kind of stuff. Right now, without much use of these kind of industry quality assurance and governance standards, people on the outside looking in can't tell who's doing it well and who's not because what these standards do is they give you the ability to not only do a thing well but then prove that you did do the thing well and without that people are struggling to adopt distributed ledger because they can't tell who's any good and who's not so i think that's something we really need to think a lot more about distributed ledger space is you know getting and implementing um well-known existing standards from you know tens or even hundreds of years of industry experience for how we do a thing so that then people looking in know that we're doing it yeah and can you standardize on a business meaning like if so uh, what would be the ideal way of defining this formally and are there any examples of these that the, we could learn from in the crypto space ah um so so yes interestingly um People have struggled with this in the past. I mentioned the um, ISO 20022 standard that's used on the SWIFT network, where you had standardized XML message schemas that are derived from standardized business components. So the message components have this clear derivation for business components, and those are defined in a kind of logical model level. And that was frustrating to me when I first came into finance from um, um, a more industrial uh, setting because... Like that's a, what we call a logical design. So it's kind of in the middle of your top-down model-driven design stack. That um, you know, in the object management group, for example, we a lot of our stuff is framed around model-driven development. So you have that computationally uh, that that platform-independent model or logical model for common terms, but it's still kind of a technology thing. Where was the um, business meaning the computationally independent model the conceptual level model for the meanings that went into those messages and things and so um over the last um 20 odd years we've seen the emergence of the semantic web stack and the the web ontology language and so on and again while that's designed for uh linked data and it comes out of w3c with its, its data focus um, it provides a way of formally defining the business meanings of real things as well. 
uh, something we call an ontology. So after many years of working with different financial industry messaging standards and logical model standards like the ISO 20022, I realized that we needed to have something at the level of the business semantics. And that's where we created this something called the Financial Industry Business Ontology or FIBO. So that's kind of trying to take this idea of a conceptual model and frame it more formally as a formal ontology. Uh, other industries, the FIRE model I mentioned from healthcare is a conceptual model, um, but it's not a formal ontology. I'm sure somebody's done one by now, but it's anything that's well-defined at that business conceptual level can quite easily be then formalized using formal logic. There's a subset of logic that we call description logic, which is basically a simple set of theoretic logic. It says here is a thing, it's this kind of thing, and here are the features that distinguish it from other kinds of thing. And that's kind of it, a simple set theory, simple categories and differentiating features. And that's what we call an ontology. And that's something that could be a lot more widely used than it is. I'm thinking particularly about smart contracts, where if you want to define what is a commitment, what are the counterparties, what are the agreed measurements, what are the sources of those measurements, all those kind of things can be formally defined in an ontology. And then you have a common language, which is not only independent of that smart contract, but it's independent of that smart contract ecosystem, it's independent of that distributed ledger ecosystem, it's independent of any technology because it's talking about real business meaning. So um, I think based on the experience of the FIBO standards, um, it's a little bit data-focused the way it's done, but the idea of it is is very much about these business concepts. We're seeing similar things emerging in the um, industrial space. There's the uh, Industrial Ontology Foundry, IOF, for example. A lot of the concepts there can be used in Internet of Things, which is something we're very interested in, um, IOTA and some of the other distributed ledger projects. So I think there's a lot of unexplored potential right now for how to standardize the business concept independent of any technology. I think every effort to try and standardize business concepts using data falls down on the fact that you can't create this sort of one ring to rule them all, sort of one data model that everybody must follow because data models just aren't structured right to do that. They always have a particular focus that won't work for everybody. Um, so that's something I think to keep an eye on. Um, I hope to see more of um, standard ontology uh, in the crypto space and crypto using existing standard ontologies like FIBO and hopefully FIRE once we have an ontology for that and you know, standards ontology for retail and, um, and others as, as they come through. Um, that will be a real key to interoperability and to business people, potential end users having confidence in that interoperability. Yeah, and hopefully developers that are listening to this are able to take this uh, information and bring it into their development. Um, so I got one last question for you before I will let you go. Um, is there an end date to standardization on IOTA or is there something that will just continue all the time as it develops? Right. I think like any living document, any living thing, well, actually, I'm about to say something that's not true. I was going to say any living thing doesn't have an end date. Well, sadly, we all do. But um, in principle, because the standard is a active uh, 
version controlled formal specification, there's always going to be changes in the world that will then need to be reflected in that standard. And so uh, most standards will have a you know ongoing uh, versioning. One of the, the way we do things with standards, we keep that fairly slow. We don't just throw out a new version tomorrow or you know roll back something that we got wrong or anything. So in object management group, the fastest you can update things would be like every three months. In ISO, it would be more like every few years or something. Uh, and for major versions, anytime we have to make a breaking change, then that becomes a, a major upgrade, which has to go through the whole standards process again, starting from the beginning. So we try and always avoid that. That's why we don't bring something to the object management group or ISO or anywhere until it's mature enough and well-documented enough that it's effectively a production solution with production-level documentation. Because that means that that very slowness and stability that makes it the standard everybody can refer to also makes it something that can always be updated within those formal processes, which, again, are very well-defined in the standards bodies. And so that update process is always done the same way. So there's always going to be new versions of a thing. Um, you mentioned IOTA specifically. Um, the, um, the the way that you run a node right now is a, a kind of a de facto standard, but it's not really documented and published as a standard. But IOTA intends to standardize the the final production level coordinate version because right up until then, there are still changes in how you do consensus, for example, or how you do node discovery, or how you deal with particular attack surfaces and you know dust and things like that where until the solution <coughs> until the solution to each of these questions is fully defined you can't have a standard where you say oh we'll throw away what we did last time we're good at doing it this way now um no standards body would allow that uh, but when we do have that stability uh, across the whole of the set of functions that you need to run a node in the final quarter side production environment, then that will be a standard. And then incremental changes after that will be non-breaking changes and can therefore be version 1.1, 1.2, and so on of the same standard. Oh. Um, so that, that's partly why it's, it's not there now, because you really have to get to that production level in order to then support that, you know, minor versioning change control that comes after that. You don't want breaking changes to the standard because that's basically starting the whole process all over again. Mm, yeah, that's understandable. Well, that's the end of the question list I had. Is there anything you would like to add? I can't think of anything. Um, just stay tuned, get used to reading formal documents. Um, there are people like me that can, can help with writing those kind of uh, formalisms. Um, what I noticed when helping folks do draft standards is you often tend to take for granted something that, um, you know, and in IT, we often learn a thing and then feel stupid for not knowing it. We think, oh, here's a thing I should have known already. So then we pretend we never didn't know that. And then we never write it down. So the hardest thing I find with writing formal specifications for standardization, or indeed any formal specification, is writing down stuff that you think is obvious 
So always think about who your reader is, particularly in distributed ledger where your reader is themselves a programmer, but they're not you. What do you know that they don't? What are the things that you think are so obvious nobody needs to be told? Because unless it's either written in the standard or it's a reference to something else that says it, then you need to write it. So, so that's the hardest thing, um, knowing what you know and actually writing it down. It's quite mm -hmm. a difficult skill um, because basically nothing can be just in the code and not also in the written spec. If it's just in the code, you haven't got a standard. Mm. Yeah, I can see this quite a lot in the, around the crypto space uh, with just general information uh, articles being written because it's written in a way that the writer think it's easy to understand while 90% of the readers doesn't understand half of it. Exactly. And we see the flip side of that as well is all this explaining like I'm five type of stuff where it doesn't explain anything. Uh, it's just pretty pictures. That's not a standard either. So we try, we go from too complex where it's all buried in the code too simple where you got two blobs wobbling about on a screen well what do you do that's not telling anybody anything um there's a skill to being able to articulate stuff such that the reader knows what you're doing and and what it means and and how to do it themselves that's the key thing so it's very like training it's it's having that theory of mind that says what do i know that this other person doesn't know and what things do i need to say or write the result of which would be that they then do know those things. Mm, most definitely. Uh, we can see a, something happening around that space because that's why someone created the IOTA content creator DAO, for instance, because then someone that wishes to send a message but don't know how to, to spread it correctly can reach out to them and explain what it is and they will write it in a way that a max amount of people can understand it. Mm. So, yeah. But... I appreciate a lot that you took the time to come and explain this to us. I think a lot of people will get quite a lot of good out of this. And uh, to everyone else, get behind and get left behind. Cheers. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. Definitely.